Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. My friend, Anthony Daniels, the House Minority Leader from the great state of Alabama, is here. He and I talk about voting rights. We talk about working with people with whom you disagree. Now, sometimes this concept is known as bipartisanship. Other times it goes by its more common term, adulting or acting like a grown-up. Anthony and I also talk about what he's doing to empower working people. Here I am with Alabama House Minority Leader, Anthony Daniels. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the podcast, my great friend, Anthony Daniels. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Anthony, you are, uh, of course, the minority leader in the legislature for the great state of Alabama. You're that state's first African-American House minority leader and also its youngest. Talk to us about the significance of the Supreme Court's recent voting rights decision. What does this mean for your state and for voters in your state? You know, actually, this particular decision is something that is ringing throughout the country, throughout the United States. As you saw today, the Supreme Court also ruled in um, in New Louisiana uh, that they must redraw their congressional districts as well. And so everyone in the entire country is once again looking at the state of Alabama uh, to figure out their path to litigation, uh, where districts have been under similar circumstances throughout the country have been uh, similar or the same. And so I think that what we're looking with the significance of this case in Alabama, uh, it gives us an opportunity, a population that's about 38% Democrat on any given election, only has one out of seven uh, congressional uh, Democratic representatives. And so what this will do is give uh, African Americans an opportunity to choose their candidate of choice instead of being divided in so many districts to where their percentages are maybe 5% or 10% of the population or even less, well, it'll give them an opportunity to be able to have a bigger voice in ensuring that the policies reflective in Washington is truly reflective of the communities of interest. Anthony, I think that a lot of people might want to know as a preliminary matter why it matters in the first place, right? So the Supreme Court said that this redistricting plan violated the Voting Rights Act, that it diluted uh, the power, the voting power of black voters. A lot of folks might say, why do black people need to be protected in voting in Alabama? Why do you need to make that racial judgment? Do you have an answer for them? Well, I would say that just read the history books and looking at the 1960s and the things that have encountered within the state of Alabama. Uh, Alabama has been at the forefront of the civil rights movement since the beginning. So when you look at uh, Alabama and its place in history, there have been traditional issues from a litigation standpoint that started right here in Alabama. Uh, we've done this with legislative districts uh, almost, you know, in a couple of times, at least in the last 30 years. There have been two to three lawsuits filed uh, regarding legislative districts that have diluted or reduced the uh, African American, the power of African Americans in uh, in the election, influence in elections. And so, state of Alabama, be during uh, before the Shelby case, during the Voting Rights Act had preclearance, and so the Shelby case did away with that sex, the sex parts of Section Five of the Voting Rights Act that forces states like Alabama that have had traditional gerrymandering or racial high racial polarization that exists 
where a candidate that's uh, African-American, uh, African-Americans didn't have the ability to really elect their person of choice. But when you look at the racial polarization studies that have been done, you will see that uh, almost 98 percent of the time, white electorate, and especially in a lot of parts of Alabama, will elect a white person, at least 98 percent of the time. And it's 90 it's some percent of the time when, as it relates to African-Americans. And so I know that in places like California, New York, and other places, uh, there's a much diverse coalition uh, of individuals that are voting for, that have, have cast their votes for African-Americans. And so, but in Alabama, we're just not there yet. I think we're moving in that direction as we continue to, to focus on job uh, growth and opportunity, bringing in people from outside of the state of Alabama, uh, while at the same time educating those within the state of Alabama on, on, you know, working together and the importance of working together. Uh, we're not yet, we're not there yet until so we have some more work to do. And so I would, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, I may be able to come back and say, hey, we're there and it's time for us to be able to, to operate as a whole. But in states like Alabama, especially in the Deep South, there's been this divide that have existed and it continues to exist today. And so some places like Huntsville, Alabama or uh, Birmingham, where you look at the Mountain Brook area, is not as is not as as uh, evident as it would be a rural community in, in certain parts of Alabama, and I'm from one of those communities. It's a very important balance. It's a dance that people have to do when you are trying to remember history and remember context, and also know that history is not necessarily dispositive. We are not going to live the present and the future right, that our ancestors did. How do you, um, as a public figure, as a policymaker in that state, uh, you are the minority, you are the House minority leader, you are leader of the minority party in the Alabama legislature, the first African-American to hold that position. Uh, you yourself have made history and, and are an example of how the ball moves forward. I mean, imagine what John Knox would have thought seeing you in the state house. But how do you... What's your message for people, especially younger people, you know, who are constantly hearing um, about the history, they see circumstances that are real and unjust and unfair, but you also want to temper that with some sense of hope and positivity. How do you do that dance, Rep? Well, at, at the end of the day, it's about relationship building and, and really finding areas of common ground for the common good. And so that's kind of what I focus on as a minority leader. I know that most states, those individuals that are in the minority uh, focus a lot, whether it's Democrat or Republican, focus a lot of their attention on throwing bombs. Uh, the way I operate is almost like more of a military. You don't get your general killed. And so at the end of the day, no one should be able to get close enough to the general and the general should be able to negotiate uh, negotiate with the other side. And so you have to understand role playing. Uh, oftentimes we put this, we cast the net wide in, in our expectations of our leader, of our caucus leaders or speakers or whatever, the person that's leading uh, the caucus in one, either, either house. And so the expectation is that uh, we only operate using one tool, and that's a hammer. So the, if you did operate it that way, the only thing you would see is a nail. And so you'll never be able to get anything done besides hammering and hammering away at the other side. And so therefore, your constituents end up getting the short end of the stick because there are no deliverables. And so it's beneficial for an individual to have conversation and build relationships and meet in, in areas of common ground. At the end of the day, um, all of our constituents want the actual uh, the services 
Uh, they want clean water. They want health access to healthcare. They want a quality education system. They want a good job, right? And they want the infrastructure that that we we need to be able to operate. Everyone wants that. And so, for some reason, we tend to think that uh, because we're having to play from behind. Well, hell, I've been playing from behind my entire life. Look at me. And so, you got to be able to operate different. For me, there are most people in politics that play chess and play checkers. Well, I try to play 3D chess because at the end of the day, I'm thinking about the next five to 10 moves after the, the move. If I make a move, I'm already, I've already thought through the next five to 10 moves. If you don't have the numbers to go in the field and win the game, you got to figure out how to make the appropriate adjustments to be able to get to put some points on the board. And that's all you have. That's how I operate in politics. I look at how do I make folks around me better? How do I advance a policy agenda that, uh, that says, not R.D., but Alabama. How do we help the people in Alabama? And so I can't go to the Alabama legislature where, where I have small children and a family, go down there and beat my head against the wall every day. I have to try to deliver and work the other side. And those, there are some individuals that think that Alabama and Washington, D.C. are totally different. Regardless of the history and the things that you've heard about the state of Alabama, there are some good men and women, Democrat and Republican in this state. You know, our Speaker of the House, a good friend, a, a close friend of mine, a personal friend of mine outside of politics. You know, when you used to hear about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan and those individuals being able to work together on things and, and go have a drink, uh, a, a Coke or, or, or whatever it is that they were drinking or, you know, to, to be able to communicate. That's the brand of politics that I try to do here in Alabama. I try to lead by example. And so working with the Senate, we're in the super minority. I've been able to uh, advance uh, very important pieces of legislation with the support of the other side. And so despite what you read about Alabama this year, we've not necessarily been in the news media about uh, a lot of crazy pieces of legislation passing uh, because we've been able to manage that process and manage expectations. And so I hope that we continue to be able to operate like that. Other states, whether you're in, in the majority or you're in the minority, Uh, just try to figure out ways to meet in the middle because at the end of the day, you're discouraging young people from going into politics because of the gamesmanship or the theatrics that's displayed on, you know, on the six o'clock and nine o'clock or 10 o'clock news. Let's figure out ways to to make news about things that you did agree upon. And so that's, that's kind of how I operate. And as a young person, what I would say that oftentimes we want to go into politics and get things done right away. Well, the institution has never moved at the speed of that a young person we're used to dealing with. We're in a microwavable society, but you have to operate a little bit different in politics because it doesn't move at that rate. And so you got to acquire patience and play the long game. If you're not playing the long game, then politics should not be for you. You said so many things there that um, I just can't let go. You know, you talk about having young kids. I've met your family, incredible wife, beautiful young people. And don't you sometimes feel like that legislators, and I'm not just talking about in Alabama or different state houses, but just everywhere. I sometimes think that these people are acting in ways that they wouldn't let their children act. They wouldn't let their kids act that way. Or if they did, you know, I, I think they'd be really embarrassed. So there's that. But then, you know, Anthony, you talked about what you have to do, like how you have to recalibrate when the numbers aren't on your side. And so that kind of leads me to the series I'm doing, The Art of Making Up Your Mind, because it strikes me 
that there are so many people, and I'm talking about political decision makers, who seem to have made up their minds that the best thing to do is to just foment more acrimony. That way they don't really have to bring home any deliverables, right? If you just make up your mind that all you're going to do is bash the person on the other side of the aisle, then you're not really accountable for getting anything done, which uh, is not the way that you do things. Because I want to talk about this really interesting bill that you introduced into the Alabama House, passed the House unanimously, passed the Senate, it's now been signed into law. You, uh, Anthony Daniels, minority leader, you don't have all the votes on your side, but you got this bill passed. It is a bill that would exempt overtime pay from Alabama state income tax. Tell me why you thought that bill was important. Well, first of all, you know, it was it was certainly a bipartisan effort. As I mentioned, the Speaker of the House, who I mentioned earlier, uh, was one of the co-sponsors of that piece of legislation. He's the first signer on it, the budget chairman signed on it, leadership in the House and the Senate folks that may identify with the Freedom Caucus all the way to those that are very far left, everybody signed on board. Uh, it was a, a balance between business and unions, also all, all in support of this piece of legislation. And the reason that I thought about this piece of legislation is I had a lot of dialogue last summer uh, trying to figure out how do we deal with the supply chain issues in, in this country? How do you deal with uh, employment and making certain that industry will uh, are able to to be able to produce at the rate that they were able to produce pre-COVID. Uh, but and one of the, a couple of things that I remind uh, folks about is, one, we lost a lot of people during COVID. And they did not get COVID by sitting at home. They were working people. So therefore, we lost a lot of hardworking individuals that uh, were on the front lines working during COVID. Number two, in order to deal with the supply chain issue, we have a, lot, a large number of manufacturers in the state of Alabama. And because we have a large number of manufacturers in the state of Alabama, oftentimes we lose some of those employees to your surrounding states. Places like in Mobile, you're losing them to, to folks in Mississippi. Uh, you're losing into Florida. You're losing into Georgia, Tennessee, all different, different types of states. But there's no state in America that incentivizes overtime pay by eliminating the income taxes on overtime pay. What is that? That's essentially a 5% Alabama, a 5% pay raise on overtime, an hourly pay raise uh, during overtime. So 5% on time and a half, a double, double time, right? After the 40 hour, hour mark, incentivize your current workforce to work a few more hours in order to make certain that we're keeping up, that company is keeping up with the production schedule but at the same time, they're able to take home 5% per hour more uh, than they would have otherwise. It doesn't cost the employer. It's the state of Alabama giving the money back instead of taxing it. And it gives that person, their family, uh, a little bit more money in their pocket as we continue to see prices increase. It gives them an opportunity to afford to be able to purchase some of those items. So the money is going back into the economy. So it's feeding local tax bases for schools and municipalities and county government. And so you're seeing that money circulate because it's for the hourly worker. I excluded salary workers. The hourly workers are the ones that need this the most. And so it gives the employer an opportunity to add this as a benefits package for them, for their, their um, individuals working for them. It gives the, uh, the employer an opportunity to get more productivity from an existing workforce. And it also will increase the participation rate in folks applying for jobs with manufacturers. 
And so at the end of the day, the hope for me is it helps families, it helps employers, and it's all, it also helps our local county and state economy. This bill passed the House unanimously. You had bipartisan support. It is a bill that will take, as a result of not taxing this overtime pay, right? You're going to lose some money from state educational coffers. Was there, and you're a former educator, was there some deliberation you had to do over that? Were there people you had to convince to come on board? Because it is going to cost your state educational system a, a little bit of money, isn't it? Some tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, it, it will. But when you, an hourly worker, their uh, consumer spending habits are very different than those that are salaried, that are upper, upper middle class workers. The local cities and towns are getting money back from local sales tax, and that feeds the education trust fund budget and their local budgets as well. And so the money is kind of, the money is circling over the wagon, but it also is solving the problem of increasing participation rate. And every time you increase participation rate, the first 40 hours you are already going to get going into the education coffers. That's what feed the education budget. So you're basically using the strategy to increase participation rate, which is going to imp- increase growth in the education trust fund overall for the first 40 hours. While at the same time, money that's going back into the economy on sales tax, uh, lodging tax, and others also feeds the same budget. And so, so therefore, it's a win-win situation, uh, and it's the only tax cut that actually puts money back into the economy. What you say, like legislating by sound bites is just not the way to do it. But how do you as a legislator, so when someone's trying to put you into this box saying, well, you don't want to defund the police, so you don't care about justice, or you want certain types of criminal justice reforms, so you don't care about safety. How do you stay out of those boxes and make sure that you are able to do the substantive work that you want to that's going to benefit your constituents? Because sometimes, Anthony, all people do is look at the soundbite. They look at the hashtag and they go on Twitter and then that's it. Full stop. How do you penetrate that? So I do town hall meetings. And so I try to play offense and preempt some of these conversations well before they take place. And so I try to control the narrative. And so we, we always, every year, we've been uh, launching a platform. And in that platform, it have items that deals with different subject areas. And criminal justice reform has been one of those particular areas. And we talk about our priorities as it relates to criminal justice reform. The other piece is when you talk about law enforcement, we passed a piece of legislation in the state of Alabama that's called permitless carry. That means that a person does not have to have a gun permit to carry a weapon in the state of Alabama. The only individuals that are denied access to a weapon are those that have been involved in more uh, crimes of moral turpitude or just defined by the federal definition that have been committed to a mental institute, mental institution. But those that go and see a doctor and get treatment, they don't actually, they don't, they're not on that list to not be able to buy a weapon, right? And so every place that this has happened, there've been an 11%, uh, 10 or 11% increase in homicide. But it also speaks to the, the concept or the theme of defunding the police. So what I did was all of those individuals on the other side that supported the permitless care, I turned it around and said, you guys are defunding the police because if you're cutting funding from permits, gun permits, gun permit funding goes to sheriff's departments, 
So essentially, you're able to turn, I was able to turn this issue around and talk to and, and really message it to say, hey, you guys have defunded the police or defunding the police. Are you hopeful, Anthony, about the direction in which the country's going? Are you optimistic? some point, we have to get back to some civility. Beyond Alabama, we, we are working towards civility and we're doing it intentionally. I'd like to see civility across the country. And I think the only way that that happens is, is going to be based upon the outcomes of the presidential election and primary. That's going to determine where we go and how we move forward. Right now, I'm optimistic about things here in the state of Alabama. Uh, I do think that as a party, there are certain issues that we've gone too far on that we've not necessarily done, done our due diligence at the grassroots level to explain to people. And, and, and for another, another thing is I think that we have to start polling the underserved communities within our own parties to, uh, to allow things that's important to them to make it to the agenda instead of the agenda being preset. And I think that a lot of times, the oftentimes the agenda has been preset and there have been little to no gains on things within communities that are underserved communities, uh, the, some of their needs and wants. Give me an example of two things. There are uh, times where you feel like your party may have gone too far on one issue or another. And then secondly, you you talk about not being responsive to underserved communities. Can you give me two examples? African-Americans, for example, have been talking about criminal justice reform since the 80s and 90s because the disproportionate impact uh, that it had on our families. And it wasn't until here recently, the last 10 years or so, that as a party, we've elevated issues that deals with criminal justice reform. Some of it was led by Coke Industries. And so they were able to get the other side on board, but some of our folks were afraid of their own shadows and afraid to really talk about criminal justice issue reform because it may have made them look, appear to be soft on crime. And so they really misjudged that issue early on. The other piece um, that I think we need to focus on, it's a messaging and theme problem. When I was approached about uh, individuals trying to box me in on defunding the police, for example. Well, when you're listening at, when you're listening to the term defund the police, it has the opposite impact of the actual meaning or intent. The intent was to fund, put more funding in other programs that help from a community service standpoint that will reduce the school to prison pipeline and focus a lot more on the reforms. Well, saying it in your mind, you're thinking who in their right mind will want to not fund the police, right? And so I think that from a messaging and theme standpoint, we stood on principles of a theme that did not match the content. So therefore a person heard the soundbite of defund the police and it actually had a negative impact on us electorally rather than a positive impact. So they should have talked about putting more, making more investments in programs that's going to reduce that school to prison pipeline, that's going to improve the interaction between law enforcement and, and focus on community policing, right? So you can talk about it in that way, and it, means, it doesn't mean the same thing to a person that just hears the term defund the police. 
And so I think that while I agree with them on the funding piece of what they meant, their intent is just harder for me to to accept the theme without without with very little context being explained to where the average person understands it. And so those are things that I think are detrimental to the growth of our party and because people listen to sound bites and it's understood by a fourth grader or a fifth grader or even a third grader, when you're explaining, you're losing. You are a great statesman and a great American and a great guy. Give my best to your family and thank you for being here. Hi, Tanisha. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Tanya, and certainly appreciate you for having me on. I think I was one of your first guests uh, a couple of years ago and certainly happy to be back on and, and really thank you for the work that you do. And you came in Alabama and you helped you, you spread the word and talked about democracy. And so we, we, we certainly are forever grateful for you taking the time out of your business schedule to come to Alabama uh, to really help move the people in Alabama during that process. Well, I will be back and you will be back here. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Here's a little legal postscript. So after the Supreme Court decision that Anthony and I discussed, the decision that threw out the um, Alabama congressional map, the legislature redrew its map. A federal court rejected that new map too and ordered a special master to redraw the districts. And the United States Supreme Court upheld that decision. So that's where we stand now. Thank you everybody for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe. I appreciate you.